Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and theology of the Reformation all over a nice cold beer. Cheers. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yagway. So this is the second no, I'm old. Oh, this is the second episode on the third at the third week of Advent. The epistle in the third week of Advent. We'll get it. We'll get there. Anyway, uh, we've been going over Luther's winter postal. Winter, the Luther's winter postal was first written, uh, first released in 1521, um, and he returned to it. It was at some points Luther's list of his favorite works changed over time, and but this was typically one of his favorites, and it makes sense. We've talked about how the impact that the, the Winter Postal and Luther's Postals had on the early Lutheran church. This was what taught the early pastors on, on Lutheran theology. It was it Mary Jane Hemig, who a professor at Luther Seminary, has written that the most instrumental way that the Reformation spread was through preaching. And so Luther, he was perceptive. He figured this out, and he realized that we need better preachers. Now, the, the, the postal was geared toward pastors. Um, these pastors were, were, of course, taught in the Catholic system. Um, and I don't know what kind of teaching in terms of preaching they had, but Luther was certainly disappointed in the quality. Right. And so he put this out, and, um, and people was, were hungry for it. It was a huge success. And uh, it, there was a lot of demand for, for later ones, but this was the first of his postals. And so what is a postal? It's, it's just something that is sent around as a commentary on the upcoming scripture texts that are going to be re- read in the churches on Sunday mornings. And it's not just, though, like a biblical study of the text, because it has purposeful notes in it to kind of help bring this text into the preaching context. So what pastors could do is they could, Luther, like for this one, I don't know how many pages he wrote, some of these he paid for one reading, He'll have like 50 or 60 pages on This wasn't intended as a sermon that someone would pick up on a busy week and just, well, I'll open this up and preach these words. This was background information. And then pastors would take this information and they would craft their own sermons. And in the process of doing that, they were learning about the Reformation. They were learning about the gospel, the, the gospel that as, as Luther understood it. They were learning how to read the scripture text in the lens of law and gospel and with the intention of bringing this gospel that they're studying in the text into the lives of their listeners. And I think, I think even today, um, I think there's value to that. Uh, this is learning at Luther's knee. This is, this is learning about, about the gospel at Luther's knee. And this is, this is really hearing how he taught his contemporaries about, about what the gospel was all about. And this is why I, I personally think that the Postals, uh, this is one of my favorite documents that Luther has put together. I have found a renewed sense of looking at a text slowly and purposefully, and not just for a sense of figuring out some sort of gotcha words, but really with a pastoral heart. Well, so we started in the previous episode looking at especially the word steward, and then we started to bleed into the word mystery. And Luther himself, as he's writing to Germans that are trying to preach this text, he says about the word mystery, I can't find a German equivalent to mysterion. 
It would be just as well to remain with this Greek word as well as with any, many other words. It can mean secretum, arcanium, something that is out of sight and hidden, which no one sees and which generally applies to words. So in the church, what is hidden and what is secret in this world that the church gets to unveil? One of the great things, this is early Luther, and I've noticed as he goes into his later years, he he assumes that his listeners are more familiar with the Bible and more familiar with, with what's there. So in 1521, it's still new to them. It's still new to them. And so what's great about reading Luther in this era and all of his writings from this era, he has just boatloads of of biblical references. He's not going to take for granted, you know, where in the Bible he's talking about. He's going to tell you where he's talking about. <laughs> right, right. And in this case, he's, you know, when, when we talk about Mysterium and the mystery, uh, he Luther backs up his position with Scripture. He, he goes to Matthew 11. He goes to 1 Corinthians 2. He goes to 1 Corinthians 1. He goes to 1 Timothy. He goes to 1 Timothy 3 and John 14. So he has this this hit parade and he could have gone on i'm sure mm-hmm. but this is what he he talks about this is where he points to about the mystery and and you can read what's great about this is you can read what the apostles said how they looked at the word mystery and you can cross reference it for yourself and check out if luther is right or wrong so the things that are hidden in this world that become unveiled by Scripture is that you have a merciful, caring God that's been revealed in the word of life, Jesus Christ. And so God's mystery is nothing less than good things preached. And so as a, a pastor, as I think about myself, as a caretaker of the invisible things that people don't see, but they need to start to believe. We, it's hard to see Jesus at times. Oh, absolutely. But there... That mystery is God at work in the world. It's been unveiled. We know God is at work because we've, we've found Jesus. Right. Jesus right. has found us. So Luther moves on from here. Once he finishes up with Mysterium uh, and with this, this concept of the mystery, he moves into the word justified. And what, does, what is it in context? What did Paul say in um, 1 Corinthians 4? So 1 Corinthians 4, our text... This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required that they may be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged. So he's got in verses 3 through 5, then, this conversation about judgment. So The world has no judgment against Paul. He says, even me, I think I'm okay. Uh, So Paul has this kind of odd humility. He says, "Um, I am not aware of anything against myself. Right. Right. But I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who's going to judge me. Now, so I, even if I don't. So he goes into this language of justified by the Spirit. And what I think he's doing is talking about how Paul writes. I, I think, and I'm, I'm going back through Luther's, um, Luther's translation. And I'm trying to find, because sometimes what we run into is a difference between Luther's translation and and our translation. Well, so the text that we had right there under paragraph one, it has uh, our our translation. So this is where you know the ESV is right there. Uh, but he starts talking about justified. Yeah, and goes, I know you're you're confused by this. And yeah, why just, is he being he talked goes, about justified by the Spirit so much? Right, and I, I, that's exactly. I'm looking for where he got that. 
And I think, oh, this is, this is actually a commentary on 1 Timothy 3.16, which was when we went back and we were talking about uh, all the different ideas that Luther, Luther went into, he backed up his position with Scripture, and we had Matthew 11, 1 Corinthians, uh, and one of them was 1 Timothy 3.16. And so this connects the bridge between mystery and and justified. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated, justified, another, justified, justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So the mystery of godliness is that Jesus Christ is the one that's justified. Though he was weak, though he was poor, though he was broken on the cross, he was justified because he was sacrificial in his love for you and I. And so this is how he starts to talk about justified by the Spirit, is he's trying to figure out what is the mystery of godliness. Right, right. And what, what Luther has here is, and I'm looking for where exactly he says it in my notes, um, I'm saying it can be said as vindicated um, and manifest in the who lived in. And I apologize that I'm reading through this. I thought I had something written here. Maybe you can find it, Evan. But what I'm seeing here in my notes is that it could be used the word justified by the Spirit through the proclamation of the faithful. And, and that's one of the things that Luther is getting at here. Whoever believes in Christ admits that he is right and confesses that it is true. This is Luther speaking. Whoever believes in Christ admits that God, that Jesus is right and confesses that it is true, that Christ alone is our life and righteousness and wisdom, for that is what he is and wants to be, and that we are sinners, dead and condemned. But whoever does not do that relies on his own works. So Christ is vindicated. Christ is justified. He alone is the one who is righteous. So if I want to be proclaiming something that is right, I don't proclaim me. Right. I don't proclaim my canon laws, my rules. I don't proclaim my self-justification. I have to, as a preacher, proclaim Christ. Right. Because Christ is the one who is the mystery of godliness that's been vindicated by the Spirit. Right. Right. So, so what happens if we refuse to proclaim Christ as our life, as our righteousness and wisdom? The only thing we have left is our own works. And that is a that's a pretty terrible. Place that's a terrible to spot to be because uh, we can, as an illusionist, for a while be hypocrites and make everyone think that we're just fine, but we're not. But we're not. And and this is one of the reasons. In a previous series of episodes we had here on Grace on Tap, we spent a lot of time going through Luther's large catechism. And, and the reason for that was because one of the things that Luther did so well in the large catechism, at least for me, was sort of uncovering all those sins you don't think about. You know, it, it really was a, a real good opportunity to make that point. To hear, like in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I now say to you, is to take away any sort of veneer of self-justification we have and in a slow glacial study of each commandment, we realize that we're not as rock solid as we thought. We need the grace of God. Right. Paul's right. words about justification then also get highlighted by Luther as he reads from Romans chapter 1. 
He was proved to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. It's as if to say that in the unbeliever, he may be regarded as nothing, only weak or even utterly condemned. But wherever there are saints who live in the Spirit, he sanctifies them. He is regarded powerfully and greatly as God's Son. For that has been proved and established to them firmly. This is Luther having the confidence that Christ is not godly just a priori because he's God. But he's godly also because of what he unveils in Christ for us. And so when we are looking at our role of being stewards of the mysteries of God, we're just saying, well, God's God, so there it is. It's over and done with. Now just keep moving on with your life and remember he's God. The unveiling of the mystery is pointing all the ways that Jesus has been proved to be the Son of God who's godly for us. One of the things that, at least for the world, um, the, the scriptures reveal that Christ is God to us. But the revelation that Christ is God is is how we are in the world, right? And for those who do not go forward, come to church, listen to God's word. What they see is us. And this is the vindication that I think Luther, also one of the things that Luther's getting at here, is that it is through our love and our, our, our joy in the face of what could be unimaginable pain and suffering that proclaims Christ. And, and this is one of the things that, you know, there is, there is an, a, a, like I think Peter says, you know, be ready with an answer. Right. And the answer isn't uh, be like a Christian like me because I've got everything figured out and my bills are all paid, my grass is all green, and I always get the best parking spot. I always get upgraded to first class. My life is filled with prosperity, so be like me. That is not not, the witness and testimony of the Christian in this world. I'm glad you clarified that because you're right. The people will go there. Yeah. The the witness and testimony of of Christians in this world is. Weak and broken as I am, just as I am, I come to the Lord, and He receives me with grace and mercy. And I would say uh, uh, absolutely, and and the joy and hope we have in Christ, not in anything that we have done. And it's it's one of those things that when when we are when we live in uh, when we are resurrection people, when we live in the justification that is ours in Christ, in the and the hope and and that that is ours in Christ, we can't help but be happy. We can't help but be joyful. And there's going to be times when people are going to look at us and say, "I don't get it." You know, I don't. It's actually our suffering that proclaims Christ most effectively to those who don't believe. So I was listening to an interview between uh, kind of a. A traditional Lutheran pastor and a prosperity preacher. <laughs> While wow. these two guys were interviewed, I mean, it was a gracious interview. There was kindness. Oh, good. Good. Um, but so the, and I, I don't remember the names. So, but the names weren't important. But this, this was a thing that stuck with me is the, the Lutheran pastor said, do you talk about sin in your sermons? Do you, do you tell people that they are sinners and that they live in a sinful world and that they need a savior? And he said, no. My message is much more positive than that. I don't intend to bring people down into that negative talk. People need to live more encouraged and more strong lives of positivity. And it was remarkable to me because 
I think the Lutheran preacher was like, people need to hear of the sinful world where, that we're in so that they know what a gracious and, and kind God that we have that saves us. And then you had this other prosperity preacher who's like, no, I don't want to talk about that negativity. I need to have people focus on the positive things in this world. I, I can think of nothing more positive than, than my sin forgiven. Yeah. I, I, I have trouble wrapping my head around the, how wonderfully, gloriously joyful it is that my sins are forgiven. And the, the preamble to that, I cannot say my sins are forgiven if I have no sin. So what's the foundation for positivity and encouragement if it's something other than Christ? Try harder, do better, work harder and pull yourself up. And if something's not going well, just get better at it. Right. So Luther says, so also that we want to grasp everything in one word, that Christ was manifested in the flesh, justified by the Spirit, and proclaimed among the nations. He has been, in short, proved, established, received, and regarded as God's Son by the angels, by the Gentiles, the world, heaven, and everyone. Because for this purpose, he was manifested, justified, seen, proclaimed, believed, taken up. It's for this reason that he calls us into these mysteries. For Luther, Christ has to be the foundation for any encouragement that we find. And that's where Paul's going to be going in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, there could be all sorts of judgments in this world, but I think I'm okay in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of God, that's what I've got to really stand on. And if I'm going to stand on how God sees me, then I've got to stand with Christ. Right. right. So it's a good time for a beer break. So our beer today, New Belgium Brewing Company, Voodoo Ranger Fruit Force Fruit Punch IPA. This is an Imperial India Pale Ale with natural flavors. Alcohol by volume is 9.5%. That's that's it, pretty potent. And it was a little surprising. If you just listened to our previous episode, we our last beer was uh, an undead pale ale. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was 6.5%. And it tasted as a beer much stronger than this. Much stronger than this. This one's kind of sneaky strong. Yes. Uh, this one, actually, it, the, we did a little, <laughs> but between, you know, w- before the podcast, we did a little research. What is an imperial pale ale? So then... I had to figure this out because I just knew it was stronger. Um, is that because it's royalty? <laughs> I'm not sure where the Imperial comes from. Sometimes it's also called a double IPA. And so an Imperial IPA is brewed with more hops, which has more sugar. The increased sugars of the greater number of hops in the brew mix means more alcohol. And when an Imperial IPA is made and more hops are used, you get something beyond the standard IPA, and it amps up the alcohol volume. So more hops, more alcohol by volume. So when when we when Evan read that, <clears throat> and it ta- we talked a little bit about this imperial IPA or this double IPA or whatever it is, you know, it was supposed to be a extremely strong, you know, very flavorful, very strong. But it, this is so much more mild than the previous ones, and I think. It's the the last one, the one we had in the previous episode, I should say. I think this is because it, this is a fruit punch IPA. So there's a lot of, we've talked a little bit about how those citric acids cut down on the, on, bitterness. On the bitterness. 
And, and it really is, I mean, this is something where you wouldn't have a clue how potent this is. Um, I don't think we'll be, I, I don't know that I'll be finishing this one. This is, but it's a good beer. It's, it's a good beer. Voodoo Ranger Fruit Force. I, I very much like this compared uh, new Belgian, I think is doing a great job, uh, with their, their fruit flavors. Yeah. Yeah. And they're finding the right mix. I, this summer, my family, we were in Fort Collins. We did a tour of the new Belgium uh, brewery oh, there in Fort Collins and went to the, the tap room in the brewery. And we got to, as she said, practice pouring a perfect pint. And she says, if you need several pints to practice, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> not at 9.6% or 9.5%. But, uh, one of the things that she explained is that they had invested millions of dollars in some new uh, brewing equipment that allowed them to do some small batch brewing in uh, a shortened amount of time. Oh. And so by the way that they did compression of things and, and the, the tubing and all this sort of stuff, she said we were able to eliminate the amount of time it would take to brew a beer and have it in our system because what they wanted to be able to do was to be able to use the system to brew multiple beers. But if you go in the kind of the traditional time period, their system would be kind of locked into something for a long period of time and that would prevent them from cycling into other flavors, which is just fine if you're only brewing one flavor. Right. But if you want to start to kind of really get into the craft market with its explosion of flavors, you need a system that can brew multiple flavors quickly well this is and yeah and if you're if you're locked into something i mean just the time it takes to bring it to to be ready for market um it it can take six weeks eight weeks you know or more to 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 have something brewed and then let it ferment and and be ready for market that's a lot of inventory right so at the new belgian brewing company they've invested in some new brewing equipment she had lots of fancy words and explained what it was all for i just knew it meant they could brew more beer faster (laughs) that's good (laughs) so i hope you enjoyed this beer break we're certainly enjoying the beer absolutely so now returning back to luther's commentary on first corinthians chapter four verses one through five uh The devil has his own mysteries. So in paragraph 22, it says, While we've got the mysteries of God, the hidden things which God gives and which are in God, the devil also has his mysteries, which in Revelation says, are on her forehead, written in mystery Babylon. Or likewise in Revelation 17, I will show you the mystery of the prostitute of Babylon. So there are kinds of things that the Pope and and others in his time uh, we're trying to say would get you to heaven, but Luther says it's nothing but going to get you to death and so, hell. So this is this is any, and I, I would say Luther, of course, in his era, um, uh, makes uh, highlights the the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages because that was the big dog, right? Yeah. But um, in a comparative study of any religion, any religion that goes to your works instead of God's work. And that's what I was going to get to is that the, the mystery of Babylon or whatever we want to call it, Luther, Luther goes into this and he says, you know, any doctrine that leads us away from Christ and toward our own works is, falls into this, this 
you know, reading from Revelation. We, we, you know, Luther, of course, in Lutheran theology, Lutheran writings, we talk about the, the quote-unquote Antichrist and the Pope and all this. But I think it's important to sort of pull back and, and say, okay, it's anybody who's pushing works, anybody who says we justify ourselves from, by works, falls under this rubric, falls under this, this umbrella of, of the mystery of Babylon. If, if, it's, if, if it's about our works, if it's about us, it's a form of idolatry. Because we will lift ourselves up as the answer, and then people will start to follow us, and we will not be trustworthy because uh, we're sinners and liars. So now he goes to the next verse in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. So everything we've had so far is all of Luther's commentary just on one verse. Right, right, right. So let's, let's go into the next one, which is, this is verse 2, 1 Corinthians verse 2. Moreover, no more is required of stewards than that they be found trustworthy. So truth, trustworthy, faith, these are all interconnected words. And the whole matter is this. That what in God asks of us is to speak his truth. And so if you're going to be a steward, what you need to do is speak God's word. That faithfulness can be this. Faithfulness can act this way. Faithfulness is nothing than this. Give to the household of people the word of God. Preach the gospel and dispense the mysteries of God. That's Christ in a way that people can believe you. So... And and, and, in paragraph 25, uh, what Luther gets into is he starts outlining what this looks like, right? He starts talking about, so, you know, first and foremost is give the household the word of God. That is the most important. You're going to be trustworthy if you give them the thing that's true. Right. Which is the word of God. And our words, we, we are liars. We are sinners and liars to the core. This is a strength of like expository preaching where we just kind of work through God's word in a way. Um, not twisting it, not seeking to bend it to, like Luther said, like a wax nose that we're going to try and twist to our own, our own ends. No, this is being true to God's word. And actually, this is one of the important things. When, when I first became a, a Lutheran, um, a, a really very a faithful Lutheran, I'll say, I, um, one of the th- questions I had is, what does it mean? How do we read the Bible? And, um, and, and I, I eventually came to see that what Luther meant by we let the Bible interpret itself. Where we, we look like we're doing here, where Luther did earlier. So we got 1 Corinthians 4, 1, talking about mystery. Then he jumps to 1 Timothy three sixteen, where there's the mystery of godliness, where the vindication of God is found in Christ. You kind of, if you've got something that's sticky in one spot of Scripture, you look at other spots and you, 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 dot, you, you, you mine the Scriptures for explanations. Right. And this is, this is a faithful use of Scripture. This is teaching Scripture not based, this is not, this is not a wax note. It's not proof texting to kind of find whatever proof I want. Right. This is where we allow Scripture to speak about Scripture. And it might be challenging because I, I may hear something in Scripture that pushes me to become something other than what the culture is asking me to do. And I have to figure out what's going to be my anchor point, um, the claim and fame I find from others 
or the identity I receive from God. And it's, it, it, it is always difficult. It is always difficult to let Scripture interpret itself. But when we talk about giving the host, household the Word of God, when Luther talks about that, you have to sort of understand Luther's, I'm going to use a $5 word, hermeneutic, mm-hmm. right? The way Luther, His method of interpretation. Right. And so when he says, giving the household the Word of God, you have to go back to what he means by that. And that is where... We allow Scripture to speak about Scripture. So for Luther, especially, uh, it happens in the small called articles. He'll define what the Word of God is. And it's, it's Jesus Christ, the Word of life that's come in the flesh. It's the preaching. It's the teaching. It's the words of absolution that are shared. It's the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Word of God is not, the st- is not just a, a piece of paper that stays in a shelf as an archaeological piece of evidence. The Word of God is the living, breathing, active life of the Word of life coming into the world. Right, right. Then the second thing, so the faithfulness, uh, we're going to go back to what can this faithfulness be? How does it act? Tell me who is improved or who is helped if a bishop became so great that he possessed all bishoprics as the Pope claims to do. Who would be helped if he were so holy that he could raise the dead with his shadow? Who would be helped if he was as wise as all the apostles and prophets had been? And so these are questions Luther is asking. And he, he says, first, the first thing is he gives the household the word of God. Second one is preach the gospel. And that's, that is, so you have the word of God, the great, the overall word of God. But then there is the active work of Christ in the gospel. Proclaiming it in a way that it is transforming people's lives. It's, it's something more than just talking about Jesus. It's delivering Jesus to people, delivering to them that good news that uh, becomes vibrant and active in their life. And then the third thing he says is to dispense the mysteries. And then this is where he starts to kind of lend into that bridge to the sacraments of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Right, right. So, you know, and this is going back to, um, uh, you probably don't have it in front of you, but uh, paragraph 16, this, this going back to the mysteries that Luther talked about back in paragraph 16, which is we already had that discussion on, on, the, um, on, on, on the sacraments. So now Luther says, compare this. Look around you. How are the Pope and all of his clergy doing? Tell me, what is the Pope concerned about? What is he scratching and raging at? And and this becomes just a good question. I think if your own preachers, if your own church, if if you go into a church and look, what are they scratching about? What are they raging about? What is driving and motivating them to keep going forward? And if it's something other than the gospel, you, you need to find a different church. You need to find a church or find a way to challenge that pastor to say, right, dear friend, I know you want to be faithful to God's word. Here's what I want to hear. I want to hear the gospel. I'm not hearing it. If he's faithful, he will be, he will be convicted by that. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why, as a pastor, I'm somewhat cautious about a hot take to some pop cultural moment that there'll be like, well, what does the church think about this? I'm like, I, I'm not sure. I think it's an okay answer to have. Absolutely. And to be able to say, I think there's more nuance than I'm aware of, but I'm pretty sure that I believe that Jesus Christ is the word of life. And let me sort out how that plays into this moment. But it's okay to start by saying, I'm not sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think most answers should begin with, I'm not sure. Uh, as a matter of fact, as an engineer, yeah, I can say that the worst decisions I've made as an engineer, thankfully, it's never resulted in anything serious. But the worst decisions I've made as an engineer were because I didn't begin the discussion with, I don't know. About 15 years ago, I met a pastor. Uh, he was also an army chaplain. And he had a coffee cup that had the handle would be a carabiner. So you could clip the coffee cup onto your backpack or something easily. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I said, uh, that, that coffee cup looks like it's seen some days. And he goes, it's my counseling cup. And I said, tell me more about that. He goes, well, someone will say something to me that is just really shocking. Or someone will say something to me that I just I cannot explain it or understand it or not sure what they said. And I said, okay, so why is it your counseling cup? He goes, because it's at that moment I take a cup. Uh, I, I take a sip from my cup and, and just think a moment. Because <laughs> I want to make sure I don't answer right away. And so, you know, it's kind of like what a beer break can do to you. Just pause, you think. And you go, I don't have all the answers, but here's what I do know. I want to share with the household the word of God. I want to preach the gospel and I want to dispense the mysteries. And if I'm raging or scratching about anything, I hope it's about how I can get better at doing those three things. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's so tempting to want to have all the answers. And especially as a pastor, you know, I, uh, I can only imagine how difficult that is because they're bringing people bring questions to you that are completely out of left field. But this is there are only really three answers you have. So right? starting in paragraph six, uh, 26, he starts to explain why this gets hard. He says there's a desire for power. Yep. There's a desire for possessions and there's a demand for obedience. And as we get power, we become concerned with keeping it. And as we get stuff, we get concerned about keeping it. And as we get obedience, I want more of it. And meanwhile, he says, souls are dying. All that is divine is being corrupted. And a wolf is in charge and he's tearing us to pieces. And they don't see anything wrong with it. No one holds them back. They sit still and calculate their records and look after the tax for St. Lawrence. And most faithfully, they care for the property of the church. You know, it's funny because I, I, um, I'm not going to name where I've been you know, uh, spiritually, I've been in all sorts of different churches, right? I'm very happy with where I'm at now. Um, but one of the things I have seen uh, in some of the churches I've been in is a deep concern. I would say the prevailing concern seemed to be for the church property, the church building, the, you know, where we where we are with uh, protect the reputation, protect the reputation. How many people are showing up this week versus the church next door? There, there are things that, that become very important in some churches. And, and so you don't have to go back. I guess the point I'm making is you don't have to go back to the medieval era to, to find churches that are concerned about power possessions, wealth, and obedience. You know, that's, that's with us today, even um, outside of the Roman Catholic Church. You, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it, it, the boogeyman isn't the Catholic Church. The boog, boogeyman is the villainy of the devil, and he, as he at work in, in the human heart. And so what was verse 2 again? So in our epistle lesson that we're looking at, we're getting through about two verses so far. 
Verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they may be found faithful. Not that they have kept the property safe, not that they have kept their possessions secure, or that they got a lot of people obeying them. Be faithful. Be faithful to God's word. One of the, so Luther, we'll, we'll probably just uh, take a break right after this, but the, you know, Luther uh, finishes up this section talking about the distinction between God's mysteries and the devil's mysteries. And he says it's very difficult to sort of discern that because the devil does disguise himself as an angel of light. This is, this is something where, and, and that, I really liked what, what Evan said a, a few minutes ago, where, you know, if you find yourself in a church that is sort of off track a little bit, you don't have to leave. I, that was my answer. Yeah, your first answer. Like, <laughs> just get out. Yeah, it's just, yeah, why, why, what's wrong with these people? Yeah, you don't have to do that. That pastor might have a good heart. He may want to do God's work. And, and you know, I would, I would assume he does, as a matter of fact. Most likely he does. He wasn't called into this to make a lot of money. I don't think, I'll, I can't think of a whole lot of pastors who went into the business to make a lot of money. You know, and so this is, this is to, to, to say, you know, to say something respectfully and, and with love and to say, you know, can we get back to the gospel? Mm-hmm. That's, that is something where, you know, there's room for that. And I think some pastors would very much like to hear that, would very much be convicted by that. Uh, so so we, we are all tricked. Not not just pastors, but as a layperson, I am tricked by the by this 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 one who disguises himself as an angel of light. And so Christ Christ continues. He says that the servant should not only be faithful, but also wise in making a distinction between God's mysteries and the devil's mysteries, so that he can preserve and keep himself and those committed to his care. That's so right. this is the the act of discernment. I think that's a part of the maturity of faith that God's word is designed to give to us. That as we stay in that habitus of reading God's word, that we start to read more and more the world with the word in mind, rather than uh, looking at the world as some sort of thing that's separate from the word. We start to see the world and the word working together. Amen. All right. So next episode, we'll get to verse three, uh, which is, but with me, it is a very small thing that I'll be judged. And actually three, four and five are going to go quicker. That'll be one episode. And the reason it'll go quicker is it's this common uh, theme of what it means to be judged. What does it mean to be judged in the world and judged by yourself compared to being judged by God? You can be judged in the world and be just fine. You can judge yourself. Paul even says, I judge myself. I think I'm pretty good. Uh, but what does it mean when you know that on Judgment Day you stand before God? And that's where First uh, Corinthians 4 uh, is going to go in our next episode. So thank you so much for listening to Grace on Tap. You can find us at graceontap-podcast.com. Uh, Grace on Tap has a Facebook page. Uh, our website is a spot where you can go and find all of our previous episodes. We uh, are trying to get to all the major podcast places you could listen to, especially iTunes, because that seems to be kind of the go-to place for a lot of people. But I think we're also on Spotify. I've tried to make sure that works. If you're listening to Spotify, let me know. Okay. Then I would know it works. I, I use I use an uh, an off off brand one. I can get us. So um, living the generic life. I'm living the generic life, <laughs> and so everything seems to be working good. Hopefully, you'll be able to find us. If uh, and we'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments or questions. 
you know, you can, you can reach out to us on the website or through an email. All right. Grace on tap. What a great place to be with us.